Welcome to the Creative Assist Podcast. We celebrate, educate, and empower creative entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Dexter, and I appreciate you for listening. I encourage you to subscribe, share, and leave some feedback as well. That would be greatly appreciated, and let's get on with the show. What's good, everyone? Today, I sat down with Rakeem Sabri. He is an emerging leader in financial education and empowerment. He is a TED speaker, best-selling author, and three-times founder. He has been seen in Black Enterprise, Thrive Global, Entrepreneur Media, Yahoo Finance, Authority Magazine, The Griot, and he was recognized as a top innovative coach by Business Insider. Super dope conversation about breaking mental barriers within finance. We touched on negotiation and setting your price and sticking to it as well. I know you guys are going to enjoy this episode and let's get on with the show. Welcome to the show, everybody. I hope all is well out there. So today I have a special guest. His name is Rakim Sabri. Uh, good morning, Rakim. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing pretty well, man. I appreciate it. I mean, also appreciate you joining the show, man. Um, Today's topic is going to be breaking through mental barriers when it comes to finance. Give us a little bit about yourself, man. So what got you started like with this whole, with this whole mission and message of yours? I've been asked this question a million times and I try to be consistent with my answer, but <laughs> it changes. <laughs> I will say that um, just about 10 years ago, I started working in financial services. I started as a part-time teller. Um, I fell into that world by accident. I needed a job quickly. And, um, the opportunity presented itself. I just relocated to Connecticut from Texas. Uh, I was in Texas for eight months um, after having relocated from New York um, in the Westchester area of New York. When I think about my journey in terms of finance, I think there's a lot of pieces that contribute to my passion. Some of that include what my experiences were growing up, uh, what I was exposed to or not exposed to, as it relates to household finances and then the realization when you change environments in that people are doing or people have or people think in a way that's very foreign to you know what you're used to or what you've seen uh, so i picked up rich dad poor dad it was actually given to me as a gift and read through that book consumed everything and was just like wow like mind blown and so i think uh, my work environment compounded that um, excitement, if you will, because I had to learn how to talk to individuals on a spectrum, you know, individuals who are living in poverty, individuals who are very wealthy um, about their banking, their personal finance, so what were their habits, seeing the balances, seeing the transaction types, hearing the stories associated with their why behind either opening a new account accepting a new credit card, not accepting a new credit card. And as I learned, I wanted to improve my situation financially. So the passion really started off as very selfish in that I was just like, man, like there's so much out there. I want this for me. Um, But as I started to learn and adjust, I would have these conversations personally with my friends, with my family, and realize that there was a lack of knowledge on their end as to what I was talking about. And so in order for them to better appreciate where I was coming from, I had to share with them the things that I had learned. And I realized that there was a huge appetite for that um, within our community and the people that I interacted with. Um, And when I say that, I mean appetite for learning around how to navigate finances. Um, There's just a lot of things that either were um, wrong 
in terms of the flips that we had or just um, poorly poorly interpreted or articulated when we talk about things like retirement or we talk about things like credit. I think credit is a big one because when I was growing up, uh, most people was like, don't get a credit card, stay away from credit. Credit will ruin your life. And um, credit has been foundational to my success financially, mm-hmm. um, not only personally, but you know, in the business world. So um, I became passionate about sharing that knowledge with other people. And as I learned more, I wanted to share more. And um, I wanted to use relevant examples from my experience to encourage other people. So when I got to the 700, you know, credit score, I was like, okay, I want to share. I got to the 700 and then, you know, climbing up to 750 and then ultimately um, reaching and exceeding the 800 credit score mark, I think was very inspirational for a lot of people being able to purchase property, being able to, um, you know, purchase uh, cars and, you know, low interest rate, being able to take out loans, investing in the stock market, like just different things that I had started to put my hands in and share with other people would encourage other people to either want to learn how to do it for themselves or um, to have me teach them. And so I kind of created a business out of it and, you know, now focusing on financial coaching, but more from an empowerment perspective and saying, yeah, you know, there's information out there that you can certainly become literate financially. And I encourage that, but how do we overcome the barriers of, like you said, the anxieties, the fears, the conditioning, uh, the lack of exposure, right? Because you don't know what you don't know um, so that we can get you to a place where you can execute on those strategies. And uh, man, I I love that mission, man. I love it. I understand it from a perspective where like growing up and even into my early, I would say like my early 20s, you know, the, the main thing I heard was do not get a credit card. You're setting yourself up for failure if you get a credit card. So for a very long time, I was walking around with no type of credit built. That right there was the first thing I felt like if I would have known at that age, I would have been on the right track instead of having to unlearn everything and take the consequences of it much later. So, I mean, you're right in plenty of aspects where it's like the earlier you learn, the better. Yeah, there's this um, this term that's tossed around quite a lot in the personal finance space called the poverty mindset. And, um, and I spend a lot of time talking about that as well, because just like you said, there's just, when you're in that environment, a lot of times your reactions are reactions, right? Like you're, you're not thinking in advance of something happening, you're reacting to things happening. So you're existing in a survival modality. And um, when it comes to, you know, being successful, in finance, you have to plan ahead. Um, you, you just can't react to everything. And so breaking that mindset is the biggest challenge I find in that some people are you know, so conditioned to survive that anything outside of that scares them or feels uncomfortable for them. And even for myself, you know, coming out of that mindset feeling comfortable and not having to like be tense and worry about the next thing was like, am I doing something wrong? Like, am I missing something? Like just constantly on edge. And, um, you know, that tension prevents you from being able to, first of all, make informed decisions, but having the flexibility to adjust 
And so let's say you're adhering to a plan that somebody laid out for you when an emergency occurs and you can't maintain that plan anymore. Well, I think most people's um, reaction would be obviously survive. So you have to throw the plan out the window, but then how do you get back on that horse and saying, okay, I'm going to adhere to the plan now. A lot of times people will put it down and then they'll just stay in that mode. Um, so th there's a lot, it's very deep. And the deeper that I get into personal finance, the more I'm able to, to um, find ways to attach to other topics that are trending in the world. Like, you know, I've never had an interest in politics, mm -hmm. um, but there's definitely strings between finance and politics right. or education or housing or relationships. Um, I mean, there's so many different ways that you can tie your viewpoint on finance into the different things that, that influence your life. That's just kind of like, now you have to learn about these things. Now you have to have an opinion on these things because they're all intertwined. No, you're 100% right. I feel like the, the, with the more information that you have, like you said, the more informed decisions that you're going to make in every single category of your life. As far as mental barriers go, like what, what was something that you had that you realized that, okay, like this is something that I have to get past in order for me to, um, you know, hit the next level financially? Um, there's a lot in that question, but I think the first thing that comes to mind is overcoming just the noise of other people's opinions, mm. right? So like I, I talk about investing in a stock market the first piece of advice that I was given around investing in a stock market was do not invest in individual stocks, invest in mutual funds that are safer. And um, I did not take that advice. Uh, well, I took that advice, but I have took that advice. So I started investing in mutual funds, but I also continued to invest in individual stocks. And, you know, fast forward, you know, however many years I um, I've done pretty well. It's, and so there's, there's this idea of um, safety that we hold on to and that, you know, mutual funds appear to be safer because it's a more diversified product, but mutual funds also, a lot of them anyway, have uh, management fees that cut into what your profits look like. Whereas if you're investing in an individual stock, there's not that management fee that you have to worry about. So sure, there's a little bit more risk involved, but there's, there's certainly a lot more reward and you get to keep, the profit potential. Um, and that's just one example. You know, we talked about credit and how people say, oh, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't use credit cards or you shouldn't have that many credit cards or, you know, you shouldn't have that high of a credit limit. If your limit gets, you know, too high, ask them to reduce it. And so uh, the average American has somewhere between two and three credit cards. Um, and I have like three times that I have like nine or 10 credit cards. And so <laughs> most most people will be like, like, what are you doing? And I'm just like, I'm doing something right. You know, like, you know, I, I got to the 800 credit score. Right. So it, there is, I think a lot of, of just noise in personal finance and it's, it's a blessing and a curse in that, you know, yes, there's an abundance of information, but is all the information accurate? And you can't answer that question with a yes or a no, because personal finance is personal. So your situation might, warrant having nine credit cards because you can manage that and you don't have any other obligations that are going to interfere with whatever your strategy is. But if you are a part of a family with 
a spouse and children and other financial obligations and debt and, you know, whatever your salary situation is, well, maybe it's not the best thing for you to have that many credit cards, especially if you're not a disciplined spender. And so um, I try to focus on that piece too, in that there is not a blanket statement that you can make around how to manage your finances because everybody's situation is different. Right. Um, another thing around mindset that I've had to overcome or, or rather I shouldn't say me, but I've seen other people have to overcome is just uh, the idea of saving in a hoarding capacity versus investing. So, you know, I was always taught from a young age to save, 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 save. Most people, they try to save. And then you have the people who know that they should save, but don't. They're just like, I can't afford to um, and make every excuse not to. And then there's the people who save aggressively, but they save in a way that their, their money is actually losing value. Whether they're taking the money out of the bank and putting it under a mattress or a safe deposit um, box or, you know, anything that's not growing their money. And so I think that comes out of fear of losing, right? Fear of losing your money. So you're, yeah. you're afraid to invest. And, um, you know, there's a saying in the personal finance world that you can't, you can't save your way to wealth. And that's, that's real. I mean, you're just, there's only a certain number of hours in a day that you can work and get paid for and putting that money, like you're just literally trading your time for money. But the people that build wealth, um, are people who have found ways to grow their money outside of the constraints of, you know, the time that they're working. So um, figuring out ways to invest, and it doesn't have to be an aggressive way to invest, Not certainly not advocating that people take all their savings and dump into the stock market or dump it into <laughs> cryptocurrency or dump it into real estate, but finding out ways to invest so that you're you're getting more time back, but you're still making money is like the life hack. Right. I resonate with that part the most, especially because I grew up learning that, you know, you got to save. You got to save. You never know what's going to happen. That sentence was instilled into me for years. Automatically, I'm like, all right, let me stack up all this money and not move it anywhere, not do anything about it and forget about it. So just in case another tragic moment happens, I can have enough money to cover it. It's great to prepare for the worst, but to be in fear of to not move your money and potentially grow it because of that is not a really a good way to think about it. That is a, that's, that's a big barrier. I'm trying to think of some other common ones that, that I encounter, but I think, you know, just some people, Oh, here's one. And I've dealt with this pretty much the whole of last week. Mm -hmm. um, people, and I want to be careful with the words that I use here. Because um, I got into trouble last week. <laughs> People, uh, there's this victim mentality. I'll, I'll just spit it out. There's this victim mentality in that I am where I am and there's not anything that can be done about it or I can't do anything about it. Nobody's helping me or somebody should help me. And yeah. so you're putting the uh, responsibility on somebody else to get you out of your circumstances. And so I made a statement that was um, very controversial on Twitter about uh, black people in this, and I used quotations, section eight mentality. And the overwhelming majority of people who had a problem with that were so focused on the word or the, the, the term section eight yeah. 
completely lost sight of, you know, the following word mentality. And then I talked about, um, you know, some of the requirements involved in, in qualifying for Section 8. And a lot of times that involves, you know, single parent household. So the man is, is not in the household um, or at least not technically supposed to be there. And then, um, you know, Section 8 is monitoring every cent that comes into your household. And so there might be a push or encouragement for, um, you know, traditional families that have split up to um, claim child support. And then it just, it's a spiral, right? And so there's people who, on the one hand, is understanding my intent. They're understanding what I'm saying. They're like, yeah, Section 8 is a trap. Like, it's designed to keep you dependent. And then there's other people. And my assumption in the situation is that, you know, they benefit from Section 8. And so they took it personally. And they're like, you know, that's a blanket statement. I was called a misogynist. Or, right. You know, just yeah. people were saying, well, you must have never grew up poor. And I was like, well, you know, <laughs> on the contrary, I, my mom had Section 8. <laughs> you know, my I, we did have food stamps. And I, I know what the experience is like, but I'm talking about the mentality that is tied to that. So when I open up in my TED Talk, I say, I wanted to be poor. And, mm-hmm. you know, that catches people on guard often. And it's intentional because, like, you know, who wants to be poor? But I follow up that statement by saying it wasn't that I wanted to be poor, but I wanted to survive. And survival looked like Section 8 and food stamps to me. I was growing up in New York. So I thought when I was going to um, go out into the world and be dependent or independent, rather, of my um, parents' household, that the goal was to get Section 8 and food stamps. And I could not fathom at that point in time a life different from that. Certainly did not think it was possible to right. own property in my 20s. And and I worked in a supermarket and it blew my mind to see that people were buying these full carts of groceries, sometimes two carts of groceries with cash and credit without any kind of assistance because that's what I knew. Right. what I saw. And so um, we talk about the opposite effect happening where people aspire to that. They aspire to hold on to that. They aspire to pass that on generationally and say, oh, you know, we have these good benefits and we're going to keep these good benefits. So we have to do whatever we can to not um, to not report income or to not gain higher income or to not aspire for more. And that's the mentality that I was addressing, not that, you know, there was an issue with anybody who uses Section 8 or food stamps, but the issue was in this dependency that we pass on, whether it be consciously or subconsciously across generations that discourages movement beyond that. Right, right. Wow. Yeah. But I can see why they got you, man. I can see. (laughs) <laughs> anytime oh, yeah. you put oh, those yeah. yeah anytime you put those you know certain certain statements on twitter man they're just gonna go nuts i never said no like where, where you're coming from in that way you told me that, that, that this tweet was actually you know was going viral too about negotiation actually i found i found it up right here on instagram so i will go ahead and oh there it is <laughs> it says negotiating is much more fun when you don't need what the other person is offering so break down that tweet what do you mean by this so uh, I can tell you the story first that inspired the tweet and then how I imagine people are interpreting it because I see a lot of people 
who are retweeting it and, and engaging with it are people who are in like the real estate um, world and or some kind of sales direct sales world and I can see why that resonates because it's like yeah like I'm placing the value on my service or my product and not the value on what you think you're giving me mm. um but the tweet originated so I, I it's actually a really funny um story I did not expect that it was going to get the engagement that it did um so I earlier this year purchased an iPad um the third generation iPad Pro um super excited about getting this thing like i um i used bonus money to buy it and i was just like yes like <laughs> i'm gonna this is my baby like i'm gonna t-. and i love it it's a it's a great device um but i must have left it around somewhere and somehow some way there was a hairline crack in the screen that um cracked the lcd along the edges of that crack and so because the LCD is damaged, it makes it ineligible for repair under my um, warranty. And mm. I did not pay for Apple Care Plus. Damn. So in order for me to replace the screen, I have to spend $500. And it's just it's this whole thing. So I'm like, well, the device works. It does everything that it's supposed to do. It's just really cosmetic. That's bothering me. Um, so a friend of mine suggested that I just throw it up on um, Facebook Marketplace and see if I can get uh 500 for it or 600 for it so i threw up on facebook marketplace because it would cost me 500 to replace the screen so it's just like why don't i just take that money and buy you know the same device yeah you might as well right yeah so um i threw up on facebook marketplace and i'm not really in a rush or pressure to sell this device i mean i could buy a new one if i wanted to and i can certainly keep using the one that i have and people are responding to it, but they're sending me like these really low ball offers. Like I have it listed at 600. People are said to be 125, 250. <laughs> 25. I think the most that somebody offered was like uh, 450, which was close to what I wanted, but not quite what I wanted. And my mentality in declining all of these offers is just like, well, I'm not in a rush to sell this. I don't have any reason to sell this. It's just cosmetic like if you're not happy with my price then you can find another device and so i synthesized that experience into those tweet those words in the tweet and Mm. um i guess it was the attitude that i had towards this situation and saying like you're not giving me anything you're not doing me any favors by not giving me what i'm asking for exactly the way that i'm asking for it and um i guess that resonated with a lot of people and I could see why, you know, when you talk about putting a price on your services, um, especially in, in, you know, this COVID world, right? Like freelance work is going yeah. way up. Um, you're seeing a lot more of that happening across a variety of different industries. But, you know, creatives, and we kind of talked about this offline, creatives and figuring out what their price point is going to be. Um, and just placing the, the value on your work, not necessarily the amount of time that it takes for you to generate the work but you know thinking about all of the time that it took you to get to where you are and in order to be able to create something today and um i just i i'm a very confident person i'm you know somebody who i feel empowered i mean that's my message right i talk about Mm -hmm. empowerment in, in almost every aspect 
um, but especially financially. And I'm just, I could very easily go buy a new iPad. It's not an issue of me needing this money. It's an issue of me wanting it. Like, why spend the money if I don't have to? And, um, you know, these people are coming coming to me like, oh, I'm doing you a favor. It's going to cost X amount of dollars to get this repaired. And, you know, this is how much it costs. And I'm like, yeah, like, this is my price. If you don't like it, right. you can go buy you an iPad. Like, <laughs> Right. So um, I can see why, you know, it reson- why it's resonating with a lot of people. But um, it's yeah. just so funny how trivial that that was oh, to I me know. and how <laughs> viral it's going. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Right. But man, like I'm just sitting here thinking about it. Like, wow, like that's a very confident statement. Um, and it's also a very like true statement. You're not doing me any favors unless you give me exactly what I ask. You know, and that exposes a lot of the uh, the entitlement that people have when it comes to like, you know, giving you money even goes further into the freelance world that like, yeah, like the price is the price. And yeah, you can give me half the price. You can give me $50 short than the price, but it's still not the full price. Do you think the market should determine price? You should determine price. Um, Like, tell me what your thoughts about that. I think, I think it's a balancing act. I think it's important to know what the market is asking for, but you can certainly exceed market and you can definitely undercut market. And I think, you know, there's examples of that being a successful strategy um, or all of those being a successful strategies, depending on what the circumstances are. If you come in lower than market, then that might be more appealing to somebody because they're like, Oh, I get to spend less money and I get quality. But you know, there's this thought that you get what you pay for out there. And so maybe the, the value that somebody else places on your product or service is not going to be as high because you're, you're pricing yourself too low. Whereas the reverse is true. Also, if you're going above market, somebody's like, okay, like he's a little pricey. What is it that makes his work better than somebody else's? Like, how do I justify paying this money? And, um, but then you, you talk about luxury brands and, you know, the luxury end of whatever it is, whether that's real estate or, um, you know, some kind of concierge service. And then it's just kind of like, yeah, people are paying for the experience or people are paying for the name or people are paying for um, the recognition. And so just kind of figuring out, you know, how are you angling what it is that you're selling in a way that this person feels very good and very comfortable about they're spending that money on you. And then you can go at market. And then now you're dealing with a competition of everybody else who's doing the same thing you're doing. Um, for the same price you're doing it at it's like how do you stand out like how do you make yourself different you know I'll be honest I've struggled with this I still struggle with this because um, I talked about coaching earlier I uh, when I first started coaching or when I had a first attempt at coaching I um, I certainly didn't know what I know now and but I didn't know something I knew that I knew more than the people around me but I had a hard time sticking to my price because the people around me felt it was too expensive. And I just wasn't confident in sticking to my price and saying, nope, like this is what it is. And so yeah. what I would do is favors like, okay, well, I'll come down. I'll come down to this. I'll come down to that. And eventually I had done so many favors that I found I was giving away what I would charge for free. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, I'm not going to do this as a business anymore. I'm going to do it as a hobby. Like, I'm passionate about this. I want to share this information with people. 
And if my price point is going to scare them away, then I should just give it away. And so a lot of that, um, there's some positivity in that, you know, I decided to streamline some processes. Like maybe I approach groups and organizations instead of individuals. So now I'm doing presentations instead of one-on-ones. Or maybe I'll consolidate the information into text. So I wrote a book where it's like, okay, I'll give you a taste. And then you can decide if you want to work with me moving forward. But even then people would come to me and say, I want to work with you. And my first response would be, well, did you read the book yet? Why don't you (laughs) buy the book and then come back to me to tell me whether or not you want to work with me because I cover a lot. But like now I'm taking money out of my own pocket because the book's $15. The person wants to work with me and I'm charging, let's call it $300 an hour. And they're sitting there getting the same information that I would have had in the book. Well, you know, I feel I have like this, this in the train, like I'm taking advantage. But I've had to work on my mindset and saying, oh, like I'm not taking advantage. This person is getting not only what it is that I put out there standard for everybody, but they're getting the hand-holding, they're getting my experience, they're getting in-depth explanation, they're getting strategy, they're getting perspective, they're getting accountability. So they're paying for my experience and their experience as a result of what it is I'm providing. And so um, what I've had to learn in this world is that you, you have to have a price and you have to stick to it. And even if you decide to do a favor, that's on you. It's not for somebody else to ask. Well, can you give me a discount? Right. And so I was talking to um, actually my father one day. And he said, listen, I don't care if you're going to do the work for free. You need to give somebody an invoice and you need to show them what your price was or is and how you discount it for them. Because psychologically, in their mind, they're starting to see, they're seeing that you put value on it and that they're getting the favor. Not that, oh, well, you know, this is my friend, so I'm just going to do it for them for free. Wow. And I, I mean, that's a hard lesson to learn because, yeah. you know, if you don't put value on it, then why would somebody else put value on it? Right. Right. Man, that's a gem right there. Like invoice people when you do favors, just so they can see the value of it. Just, just, just so psychologically they can be like, Oh, okay. Like I wasn't just getting something just, just because like, yeah, like it's a, it's a hookup or whatever. Or maybe I'm, they'll I'm, just pay you. Like that's like, yeah. nah, like, you know, I've had friends who's like, no, I'm going to pay you. This is what your price is. I'm going to give it to you. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to take advantage of you. I appreciate mm-hmm. you wanting to do that favor. And so, I mean, I think the same thing applies for contracts, invoices, NDAs, like whatever it is that you do in your standard business practice, if you're doing a favor, those same things need to exist. You just show them the lines that you're crossing out and saying, look, this is not going to apply to you for this particular instance, but this is what is standard. Um, and, and you see that in, hardcore sales environments too, right? Like you go to a car dealership and they're like, oh, we're going to give you this discount. We're going to give you this discount. This is the manufacturer warranty that we're taking off for you. And so they're making you feel good about the transaction because they're doing you a favor. But are they really doing you a favor? Right, right. You know, like they're, you know, they're not really taking a loss. They're making it seem like they're taking a loss so that you feel better. Like, oh, we saved you $2,000 on this $26,000 transaction. You know what I'm saying? Like they're still right. making out. Yeah. <laughs> True. Yeah, you're right. So using that, you know, psychologically, like using that in your own practice and saying, hey, look like this is where the discount is here. This is where the discount is here. I'm going to do this whole thing for you for free. 
and letting people know, like, I'm doing you a favor. They feel grateful in that instance. And they also take you seriously. Like, okay, like he has a business. Like I have to, I have to treat it like that. No, that's true. Yeah. And that's something I'm, I'm going to implement right away. That's a good idea. Shout out to your dad, man. That was a bar. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thank you, man. I, I think I think that's it, man. I don't want to hold you too long. Uh, but this is this has been a great conversation, really, and I appreciate you joining us today. Yeah, man, no problem. Um, happy to help any way I can. Yeah, no doubt, man. Uh, and before you go, though, where can the people, you know, find you on uh, on Instagram? Or really, like, I know you have tons of projects, but, you know, feel free to you know, plug in whatever you like and, you know, where people can catch up with your work and some of the things that you're up to. Yeah, everything is going to be on my website. So that's my name dot com rockham sabri r-a-h-k-i-m-s-a-b-r-e-e dot com um but all of my social handles are my name as well so twitter is at rockham sabri instagram at rockham sabri facebook linkedin all at rockham sabri um i have a book financially irresponsible on amazon it's a bestseller five stars check it out financially irresponsible and please if you read it leave a review Cool, man. Thank you. Will do. Um, I'll go ahead and cop that book, man. You, you brought tons of value to us, man. Appreciate it. And uh, uh, hopefully, hopefully they don't get on our asses for that, for that section eight and like victim mentality part, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, your, your, your ratings might go way up. People are going to be listening and retweeting like he said. <laughs> right. <laughs> Craziness. But all right, man. Well, you have a good one. Take care. All right. You too. And that'll do it for today's episode. I appreciate you for listening. If you made it this far and haven't yet subscribed, I encourage you to do so for more content like this. I also would appreciate it if you left a review on Apple and shared it with someone who would like it. I'll talk to you next time on the next episode of the Crave Assist Podcast. Thank you and take care.